This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the Art of Change podcast, where we take a look at the latest news and events happening throughout the Arts Division at UC Santa Cruz. I'm your host, Maureen Dixon Harrison, and I'm the Assistant Director of Communications and Marketing here at UC Santa Cruz's Arts Division. We're thrilled to be introducing a new format of our podcast with this first episode of the Art of Change video podcast, featuring our Dean of the Arts, Celine Perenas Shimizu. In these episodes, Dean Celine will talk to a variety of Arts Division faculty, students, and staff about not only the critical issues facing the university, including equity and inclusion, but she'll also cover personal stories and discover how we're all prevailing during such challenging times. Enjoy. I grew up in the Philippines, in Manila specifically. in a very large family. So I have um, a total, well, there's eight siblings in my immediate family, and I think over 150 to 200 cousins on each side. And, you know, I, I know most of them. Um, and, you know, grew up seeing them. And, um, yeah, and I migrated, immigrated to um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where I went to high school. So I came to the U.S. as a teenager. And then um, from there, you know, moved to California and um, did higher ed at um, the UC system, uh, Berkeley, and then my MFA at UCLA Film School, and then went to Stanford for my PhD. You know, throughout high school, I, uh, you know, was part of an immigrant low-wage working family. You know, my parents were never around. And I remember just waking up really early, uh, you know, to work at Dunkin' Donuts, you know, like time to make the donuts, like in the East Coast, you know, and, you know, walking across the snow, like climbing a hill to walk alongside the freeway to get to Dunkin' Donuts so I could start my 5 a.m. shift. I supported myself through college, you know, like I had three jobs. I worked as a, I don't even know how I did this because I don't really know how to cook, but I worked as a sous chef, you know, like making burgers, eggs and grits, you know, um, for Lois the Pie Queen at Berkeley. And then during the day, I ran uh, the Center for Racial Education, which was a student-initiated service group. And through that, I produced events. Um, One was called, you know, Heterosexism in Color, Racism in Pink, and it featured... Marlon Riggs, a legendary uh, filmmaker. I produced an event called Teatro, People of Color Theater, which brought together six different um, theater organizations from the Bay Area to perform on campus. I did a you know huge Women of Color magazine, a huge Women of Color film festival that really impacted you know the campus, brought together hundreds of people. A Women of Color retreat. I really took advantage of the funding that was available to produce events on campus. And then at night, I worked in a movie theater. You know, so um, I think I paid $600 a semester and it cost $1,200 a semester to live in the co-ops. And, you know, I didn't get housing. And I remember I could only get into the co-ops because I was an EOP student. And I think if that didn't happen, I would have dropped out. So I really believe in the power of higher education, especially for people like me, you know, who didn't have, you know, family financial uh, support, you know, 
to get through because you can get in, but to be retained so you don't drop out, you know, is a big deal. And, you know, there were programs like um, minority summer programs uh, in research, and that's how I became an academic, you know, through the Mellon Foundation funded students of color to learn how to become academics, to prepare for the GREs. And I think I did that sophomore and junior year, took advantage of the president's undergraduate fellowship and worked closely with a faculty member to learn how to write. Um, and then in film school also, you know, uh, getting a fellowship, you know, um, an affirmative action fellowship to be able to get in. And, you know, at uh, Stanford, I attended uh, a program that was a majority student of color um, program. Um, focused on interdisciplinary research. So I was very fortunate in that, you know, I worked very closely with faculty, you know, who believed in me. You know, I, I remember my very first week at Stanford and my dissertation director, you know, who would become my dissertation director, Harry Elam, asked me, what do you want to do? And he just kept asking me that over and over again. And that was when my first book was born, that very first week at Stanford, you know, and he helped me because he just kept asking me, what do I want to do? And I think the question really was, what do you want to do if you are free? You know, if you have no restrictions, what do you want to do? You know, and so I believe that higher education can make us free, you know, from the restrictions that have, you know, bound us and imprisoned our minds, you know, to behave as if we don't have access or right to our power. I, you know, did not get housing when I first got to Cal. And so I had to take an hour and a half bus, you know, from Alameda all the way to Berkeley. And I remember on one of those bus rides, you know, I ran into an older man who was a veteran who said, haven't I seen you? in the bars of the Philippines before, throwing ping pong balls out of your vagina. I was 17, I think this was my first week at Cal, you know. And not only was it confusing, it was, you know, frightening. And, you know, I remember when I heard it, I thought, that's not me, I'm an upwardly mobile college kid. I'm, you know, I'm not doing that, you know. And at the same time, you know, when I got into the classroom, I realized, wow, I mean, I am not her, but she is also me, you know, in the sense that we are tied together by this sexualization, this racialization, you know, and I learned that I needed to use my power in order to help provide greater understanding that included not admonishing or diminishing the lives of women who have to live in that way, unfortunately, because of the lack of choices. Um, and the way that the world has been organized, you know, to disenfranchise them. You know, and I really especially speak as an Asian-American woman because my very first book was about the hypersexuality of Asian-American women, women and how that has been imposed upon Asian-American women in representations, you know. And that's really about, you know, not owning, you know, your own power, your own pleasure, your own freedom. And that was what my first book was about. And so... You know, we talk about the economic and social mobility that higher education affords, but there is, you know, the power of freeing your mind, you know, that occurs in the classroom, 
you know, when you become educated, you know, and you learn, you know, the formal aspects of what it means to interrogate a problem and to help solve a problem. And so that is the power of higher education that really, you know, guides my leadership as well as my own experiences of the many obstacles that I faced in securing an education, you know, like what it means to graduate after having paid your own way, you know, was not easy and it was not cheap, you know, even though it was possible at the time in a way that it isn't now. So I think a lot about, you know, my service as giving back to future generations. Well, um, it's fitting that I'm the dean of the Division of the Arts because I've had, in a sense, a kind of, um, you know, dual career, you know, nurturing um, my work as a filmmaker, um, making uh, experimental documentaries that are really focused on archival research and as a scholar, you know, writing uh, books that are focused on race, sexuality, and transnational popular culture, as well as doing all of the attendant, you know, work of a professor, you know, uh, editing, um, editing anthologies, and um, serving as an associate editor of Gay and Lesbian Quarterly, of Women's Studies International Forum, of Asian Diasporas and Visual Cultures, so my work as a film scholar and a filmmaker really straddles so many disciplines. You know, I'm really, truly an interdisciplinary scholar. And my main contributions have really been on race, sexuality, and representation, and specifically moving us away from the positive and negative image framework to really confront the complexity of images. You know, why is it that we desire to see images that subjugate and oppress us. You know, what, what is that about? So what is the psychic life of a spectator? You know, so um, my, my work has really been in that, in that area and really embracing the uncertainties of um, what we see in popular culture and what we can do with it that can be creative, that can be uh, productive. Like many of our students, there's something quite unsatisfying about speaking only in a written form, you know, and making arguments or showing your understanding of an issue, you know, through analytic writing. You know, I, I, there are things that I understand about anger and about rage, you know, through poetry in, in a way that really, you know, talks to me. Um, there are images that can convey what maternal love looks like in a way that I haven't really read. You know, so there's many limits to what we can learn just from reading. You know, and um, because I understand and operate in the world through a multiplicity of languages, and maybe because I'm also an older sister and I, and I like organizing people you know, to do their best, so, uh, uh, you know, a filmmaker, a director, a producer, I mean, that's what they do. I mean, they bring together really talented people who are excellent at production design, you know, trying to figure out the relationship between space, people, objects, props, right? And cinematographers, you know, what is the right framing? I'm thinking about, you know, how do we film our elders? You know, 
who are really aware of the precarity of life and what's important to them and what they want to pass on. How do you light that? You know, how, how do you illustrate that? Especially at this moment of anti-Asian hate, I think that you know, I'm talking with my cinematographer and I'm thinking, the way you shoot our elders is to shoot them with love. You know, it's almost like shooting them as if they have a halo on their head. You know? Um, you know, they're the ones who are important as we are you know, shooting them surrounded by descendants and family members. So as you can see, even in this one project, you know, that there are ways of producing knowledge and understanding the world that can't just be limited to, um, you know, of traditional academic writing. And this is my job as the dean, you know, to be able to say that um, the university is providing the space so that our students can become confident in the languages that they want to become expert in. You know, that they're going to leave the university in the strongest um, manifestation, you know, of their talents and their skills. The last feature film that I made, which is called The Celine Archive, and I finished it during the pandemic. And I was lucky enough in May to um, have a live theatrical premiere at the opening night of the Harlem International Film Festival. There was that small period of time where we could, we were suddenly out and about, you know, and I took a flight to New York. Nobody was really on the flight. They gave us our own rows, you know, because it was empty. And I didn't quite realize, you know, how much a film needed a theatrical um, release, you know, to be in the room, you know, and for the people, you know, who came to the film festival, it was the first time that we were in a movie theater in 16 months, you know, and people were crying. I mean, I think, I think the film compels that response, but it was intensified by our going out for the first time, you know, because you have this fear, you know, in the pandemic, but you also had this need, you know, uh, to be in a space, you know, with people watching a movie, experiencing a movie. So that film, you know, is really about this area. You know, it's about a Filipino-American woman who was killed by her community in Stockton. And, you know, what I mean by this film is about this area is that, you know, Watsonville and Salinas and Santa Cruz has been the site of Filipino-American history, you know, for a hundred years, you know. And to me, it's shocking that people don't know that. And so I'm really pleased, you know, to be situated here because I see that there's going to be a lot of work to be done, you know, in the archives, you know, in this area about, you know, how to share that history. You know, in 1930, there were race riots in Watsonville, you know, and Filipinos were killed. And one of the reasons, apart from the fear of their taking jobs, was their affinities and affiliations with white women, Filipino men marrying white women, you know. And so there's so much, I think, to dig up in this area that I'm really eager to do and uh, to build from the work that is happening already by, you know, Philippinex American scholars and students who are here. So to join that community, you know, so I'm really excited about that. The pornography of racism, you know, um, Vincent Brown, you know, quoted that in a beautiful 
you know, documentary about, you know, the impact of the birth of a nation, um, this film called The Birth of a Movement. It really struck me when he said that because I operate with excellence. You know, I'm really hardworking and um, have been in situations where I can really solve problems, you know. But the pornography of racism, I think, is something that I've encountered where the excellence becomes invisible because of the way I look. That it's almost unbelievable that I could contribute in this way, you know. And so it's something that I have to, it, it's always shocking when it happens, you know. It's almost like the, the violence of low expectations, you know, when I'm operating at a different level, you know. So it's a shock when it happens, but it happens all the time, you know. And um, I think it's, it's um, evidence of... Um, the exclusions of white supremacy, you know, that have prevented us from having diverse leaders or even, you know, equal access to higher education. I chose to apply to become the dean of the Division of the Arts at UC Santa Cruz because the work that happens at UC Santa Cruz, you know, by uh, the faculty is so inventive and so innovative and so concerned with social impact and the work of the students as well, you know, that there is, um, there's nothing you can do except to be humble in the face of the greatness of our students, you know, and, and the work that they're producing, you know, whether it's contending with a legacy of incarceration in their families, um, you know, what does it mean to produce art and knowledge within a tradition that you know, but a tradition that has been undervalued in the curriculum? Um, and also, you know, my very first day on the campus of UC Santa Cruz as dean, I was really inspired by the devotion of the staff in the life of the arts and what it means to produce art in this place, you know, to keep this place running, to make sure that the students are thriving, you know, so I support all of that. And I feel very honored, you know, to have the role of making sure that our students don't have any obstacles to their education and that the faculty have the support that they need to continue making the work that inspires the next generation. The arts division's greatest strengths right now is its attention to practice as well as history, theory, and criticism. The um, faculty are really devoted to our students who represent the diversity of our state and to be open to what that means in terms of what we study in our classrooms and how we talk with each other in our classrooms. So I'm really excited to continue getting to know um, the work that happens in our classrooms and um, what it means for the future of higher ed. I am currently touring all of the different uh, departments and programs and uh, talking with 
the staff and um, the chairs about what they're doing regarding diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, what are their plans? Not only in terms of the curriculum, you know, to make sure that it's alive and um, inclusive of traditions that are global, uh, traditions that are not only Western, um, but also how they are attending to our diverse student body first-generation low-income students, for example, um, queer students, um, the experiences of women in the classroom who continue to get disenfranchised, especially in production practice. You know, what are we doing with what we know about those exclusions that exist? Um, The second thing is I'm really thinking a lot about how can we encourage um, you know, faculty to apply for funding, to get the funding, to give, them, to give them the support so that they're competitive, but then also to provide the funding that's needed in order to get more funding? Um, so what are we doing in terms of the infrastructure of the Division of the Arts you know, to support uh, faculty research, to support the um, internships, apprenticeships of our students so that they, they, can, they themselves can advance to become researchers in their own right. Um, I'm thinking a lot about um, access, you know, what it means for us to continue to diversify the student body in a way that's accountable to the communities in which we live and how to create pipelines for our students so that they can work at the university, you know in terms of not only being faculty, but also becoming staff, you know, that really provides the scaffolding for higher education. I'm so excited that UC Santa Cruz has been recognized for being one of the universities that has most impacted students in terms of real social and class mobility. And I think a lot about how our students nonetheless still leave the university with debt and how that can be quite debilitating for students, especially who are entering careers in the arts, where there's so much we don't know, you know about how to get a job you know, in the arts. Um, so I'm working with our staff, specifically our chief of staff, Allison Tribom-Lucas, on the Professional Pathways Program and partnering with different um, uh, corporations and other industry and um, independent organizations in order to really demystify for our students, you know, a pipeline, you know, about how to get work so that you can have real social and class mobility, but then also how art is a part of everyday life. You know, it's a part of user interface. It's, it's a part of the way we understand how to move in the world, signage, you know, so the more we can do you know, to, to help our students um, succeed in the workplace and find careers, then uh, the better. I do believe that um, we currently live in a world where if a student tells their parents that they want to major in the arts, it doesn't necessarily elicit the most welcoming or encouraging response, but instead one of fear, one of concern. So we have to acknowledge that, you know, and... Um, make sure that our students become educated in various career pathways so that they feel confident that it is worthwhile 
to invest in strengthening their ability to speak in in painting and music, you know, that there is a place for them in the world. And that's what we learned in the pandemic, right? Is that art helps us to live, art helps us to not be isolated, you know, to to really live a really rich and full life, you know? So art is very important to the everyday and um that is what I use to guide, you know, my leadership of the division. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.